This podcast episode should make just about everybody on both the left and right extremely mad. And what makes it even more fun is that I get to make everybody mad by actually telling us some good news. Despite all of the hype about Sturm und Drang, Flight 93 elections, binary choices, and how we have to ally with our traditional political enemies to stop the march of fascism, America's probably going to make it through, regardless of who wins in 2022, 2024, and beyond. That doesn't mean that there aren't bad ideas and dangerous currents on both the left and the right in American politics. But maybe we should chill it out with the whole catastrophizing thing. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another calming yet counterintuitive episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Remember that you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider, assuming that your podcast provider has a rating system. Please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy the podcast, and if you don't, there's really no need to bother. You can also find us on social media at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte on Facebook or at the Robertson School of Government's Facebook and Instagram feeds. So this podcast is something I've been kind of thinking about for a while, and I've hinted at these themes before. And so I do apologize if we start to repeat some things in the podcast, but some things bear repeating. And this is one of them. And let me start with a statement that I will then spend the rest of the podcast backing up. The biggest threat to American democracy today comes from people who think that American democracy is on the verge of collapse. Let me repeat that again. The biggest threat to American democracy today comes from people who think that American democracy is on the verge of collapse. We live in a climate where our politics are dominated by a kind of existential fear of the other side. An existential fear of the other side that has been relentlessly stoked by partisans of both sides for quite some time. And that is created at least in part by the environment in which we operate, an environment in which social media hot takes essentially dominate our political discourse. Because of that existential fear, people make choices that they would not make otherwise. If you are in fact convinced that the person that you don't like is an existential threat to the Republic, then you will do whatever is necessary to prevent that person from winning. There is no better exemplar of this tendency at work in American politics than the last four years with Donald Trump. Donald Trump stepped into a situation where people on the right believed that there was an existential threat, believed that Democrats were undermining the foundations of the American Republic and created a movement on the left that thought that now Republicans were an existential threat to the American Republic. As a result of which, you have seen the corruption of both pro and anti-Trump forces. What do I mean by corruption? What I mean by corruption is not necessarily that, that favors are trading hands, but I mean it in a more intellectual sense of people are willing to say and do things that they never would have said and done before they entered into this climate of existential fear. People are willing to put up with things. People are willing to endorse arguments that they never would have said had it not been for the belief 
that America is on the verge of a precipice from which we will not recover. Now, if, in fact, these arguments are true, then this corruption is justified. But the reality is, Donald Trump's administration served as an acid test of American institutions. And here's the crazy part, folks. We passed. It does not feel like we passed, but we passed. For all of the craziness, the reality is Donald Trump lost the election in 2020 and left office. Now, if you want to argue that the election was, was irregular or whatever, okay, I'm going to say what I said before. There have been stolen elections before. And in the past, presidents have, even though they knew the election was stolen, conceded. Richard Nixon is an example of that. In 1960, there was very good evidence that the 1960 election was stolen, that the Daily Machine fabricated enough votes to put John F. Kennedy over the top, that Lyndon Johnson did the same thing in Texas. By the way, this is coming from Jeff Greenfield, who's a historian who's radically pro-Kennedy. Okay, so this is not really a controversial argument at this point. And Nixon, recognizing the threat of Soviet communism abroad and concerned about the types of divisions that would open up at home, stepped aside. Donald Trump obviously did not act in this fashion. That's, that's, that's pretty obvious. Now, part of the reason that Trump didn't act in this fashion is because not acting in this fashion was enabled by people who believed that Democrats were an existential threat. While at the same time, the somewhat unhinged anti-Trumpism of large segments of the country fed into their own existential threat, the idea that Donald Trump was an existential threat. And this led in large part to the increasingly hostile and confrontational post-election period, culminating in January 6th. So if we look again at the base of everything that's been happening recently, it is this existential fear of our political opponents. This is the greatest threat to democracy. It's not Donald Trump, and it's not the left. It is an existential fear that the other guy winning an election will lead to the end of America, as we know it. And the reality is it's just false. It's just false. Okay. To understand this, you have to step back from the spin cycle. And you have to realize that most of what passes for media coverage today consists of finding something crazy somebody on the other side said or did, and then trumpeting it to the world as a representative of that side. And this is how the media, essentially, of both left and right, cover what's happening in America today. And the reality is that it might seem like your political opponents are crazier than they've ever been, but the reality is they've always been crazy people. Now it's just easier to find them. It's just easier to hear what they have to say, because everybody's got a megaphone, and because it is relentlessly within the interest of your side to hype that up. Now, why is that? Is that because these, these social media folks, you know, bu the, the BuzzFeed and, and, you know, Breitbart and whatever, want to undermine American democracy? No. It's because they have traded the short-term click for the long-term benefit. Right? The reality is that the actions of these social media giants, the big tech folks, you know, the, the clickbait journalists, are actually undermining press freedom because it's, it's making people not see the utility of the press and the value of the press, making people think that everything's fake news, and if everything's fake news, then let's just go ahead and censor it. And by the way, censor it in ways that 
agree with the views of my side, not not the other guys. Like my my side's craziness is okay, their side's is not, right? Because we're in an existential crisis. Okay, this type of attitude is dangerous. It's being fostered by people who would bemoan it, but are also taking part in it because it's profitable for them in the short term. Because the social media clicks give you an endorphin high and they're good for ad revenue, right? So there's a business model problem that has developed, not necessarily on purpose, but has developed in social media. But then we step back from the social media world and what do we find? We find that most people are actually not that involved in politics. I was shocked when I kind of, the day after the, the Trump impeachment thing ended, the second one, went on Facebook, looked at my friend's feeds. It was mostly cat videos. Okay, people are, people are done. People are exhausted. People are, are out of it in terms of politics. They are not following this anymore. They kind of see the Trump show is over. And it was crazy and it was entertaining, but they're done with it. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two, let's look at what actually happened in the 2020 election. In a very clean way, the American public got rid of Trump, but really didn't give Democrats a lot of power to do a lot of things. Okay, you look at all the crazy stuff that's passed from the House in, in a party line vote, HR1, the Equality Act, etc. None of that's getting through unless enough Democrats jump on board with eliminating the filibuster, which, by the way, is political suicide. Okay, it is the kind of thing that would lead the Democrats to take losses in places where you're not thinking about in 2022. Because the voting public, just generally speaking, doesn't like big change coming from government. There's a small c conservatism. This is why people always do things, politicians always do things, presidents always do things through the administrative state, because nobody sees it, right? You don't have to take a vote on regulations that are going to make radical change, right? And people hopefully aren't going to notice it. But even that is starting to diminish as people are starting to, to realize the impact that these regulatory apparatuses have on their daily lives. So the more and more we have that start to be the case, and by the way, if all the, if all the clickbaity folks on both sides would stop talking about what some, you know, random nutjob state legislature in, in, you know, place X did, or random backbench congressional representative who is, uh, let's just say, not on the most valuable committees, but, but maybe has a, a pretty effective social media game. Sometimes is not on any committees at all. Looking at you, Marjorie Taylor Greene, looking at you, Ilhan Omar, looking at you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Matt Getz, Louis Gohmert. You know who these people are, right? They're the fruits and nuts that everybody likes to emphasize because they say dumb clickbait stuff that they know is dumb and they know is clickbait and they're playing the game and being vilified by the other side helps them raise money. Okay, that's what this is about, right? So we focus on that. If those same folks would focus on stuff that was coming out regulatory speaking from various different agencies and put that under the microscope, social media would actually be useful because people would see the things that were happening, right? But we, we like to chase, you know, people, people like to chase the lazy, easy stuff. That being said, the reality is everything the administrative state does is potentially undoable by the past president. So if you didn't like Trump's policies, and I thought some of them were good, some of them, some of them were not. Most of them I would say I probably would like better than Biden's policies, but some of them I think, you know, I, I think were, were problematic and, and not well done, mostly. 
if you're interested in what those are, either before or after this comes out, you can you can listen to the immigration episode and you'll probably get a good sense. But the reality is that most of that can be undone by a pen. If Biden does stuff we don't like over the next four years, it's going to be terrible for, for you know, four years. And then, or at most eight years, which is pretty bad, right? Eight years is a long time. But then the next Republican president comes in and boom, phone and a pen, everything's undone. Okay, by the way, let's also keep in mind that the Supreme Court is either five to four or six to three conservative right now, depending on what you think of John Roberts. I'm not sure that most of the things that Democrats want to do is even going to stand scrutiny from that. You know, I can't speak to HR1 as much because I'm not an expert on that. By the way, Regent is going to be doing an event on uh, that's focusing on some of the, uh, the ins and outs of HR1 here pretty soon. It should be interesting. I think that there's a lot to be concerned about with that. I'm not sure that giving the federal government that much more control over elections is really going to fix things. It would be nice to establish some best practices for how we do some of the stuff moving forward. But I'm not sure that a bunch of unfunded mandates or, you know, re requiring the government to do more in terms of vetting what nonprofits say that can be considered quote unquote political speech and requiring them to disclose their donors, you know, given that California has had this recent issue of actually violating people's First Amendment by quote unquote accidental disclosures of things from nonprofits. Like we need to be careful about some of this stuff, right? So there are some, some real concerns, but I can't speak to that from a Supreme Court perspective. I can tell you that... If this California case goes the way I think it's going to go, the, the nonprofit provisions of HR1 could be gutted before they're even out the gate. I want to also say this about the Equality Act, which is one that I know a lot of conservatives are concerned about. There are two things that you need to keep in mind. One, the Equality Act explicitly says that RFRA legislation does not apply in cases of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity dis uh, discrimination. That's a violation of actually Obergefell, which is the case that makes gay marriage legal, and of Masterpiece Cake Shop. So just in, 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 my, in my read of it, Justice Anthony Kennedy basically comes out in a 7-2 opinion in, in Masterpiece and says, look, Jack Phillips has a, a, a religious, a sincere religious conscientious objection to gay marriage. And we have to take that seriously. Okay? I don't know how you, you turn around from that 7-2 and say, well, okay, great. But we're going to take that entire category of religious exemptions and say that doesn't count anymore. No takesy-backsies. Right? When the Supreme Court says something seven to two, and then Congress set, you know, essentially sticks their finger in their nose and says neener, 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 eventually somebody is going to sue at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court does not like being disrespected in that way. So I think you actually could get an eight to one that, that says, no, 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 you need to go back and you need to redo this because this is not okay. Right? There's another possibility, which is that there have been some claims that, or, or some reports that I've heard, in fact, we, we talked about this on this podcast a while ago with Brad Jacobs, that, you know, the Supreme Court's open to reviewing the decision in Employment Division versus Smith. Employment v. Smith is the case that essentially got rid of the strict scrutiny standard, says that, that federal and state laws have to pass two tests, compelling interest, in other words, they have to have a compelling interest, and they have to use the least restrictive means of achieving that compelling interest when it comes to free exercise claims. And that strict scrutiny will be applied. Okay, basically, RIFRA for uh, RFRA for federal law puts the Smith standard back in place for federal law by by Congress. The reality is that if the court decides that Smith was wrong, which they could do, and says no, we're going to go back to the the um, 
compelling interest, least restrictive means, strict scrutiny standard. Which, by the way, would probably be better, would, would be good for, you know, on these LGBT issues for Christians, it probably would be, would be really good if you're in a religious minority group that has views and practices that Americans find a little weird. You know, because that's originally what the standard was was designed to protect. It wasn't actually designed to protect the the majority opinion or or a large religious opinion. It was designed to, designed to protect views that were weird and unpopular, like people who wanted to sacrifice chickens because they said they had to do so from a religious standpoint, right? So, you know, chicken sacrificing is probably a little bit more outside the norm even than folks who have religious objections to various aspects of LGBT ideology. The reality is that if you protect the people who want to sacrifice chickens because the gods told them to, you're also protecting people who have those views that are out of step with with uh, LGBT ideology. So it's kind of a win-win for just about everybody in that respect. And I hope the court does it. If that happens, the Equality Act is going to be struck down out of the gate, like literally before it's even implemented, if, if that's, that review of Smith actually does happen. Okay, so there's a pretty good chance that the Equality Act, the most dangerous provisions for religious people, are going to be incredibly irritating and annoying for about nine months at most. And then the Supreme Court's going to get a chance to review them, and the Supreme Court's going to smack them down hard because they did exactly what Kennedy said not to do. And since the court, the court has actually moved to the right of where Kennedy was when he wrote Obergefell and the majority opinion in Masterpiece. So it may even be a broader decision than a narrow, you're not taking these, these, these religious objections seriously, right? So what do I mean by, by focusing on these, these examples, right? H.R. 1 and the Equality Act are two things that a lot of conservatives said, see, this is why it's a catastrophe. If the Democrats get elected, they're going to do all this stuff. Okay, number one, they have a very narrow majority for passing any of this, okay? Joe Manchin, even if he decides to get rid of the filibuster, is he going to want to vote for the Equality Act, Right? Is, is Lisa Murkowski going to want to vote for the Equality Act? You know, how about Raphael Warnock, who is a, a minister who's up for re-election in two years, right? Not going to necessarily play all that well with a lot of African-American churches, some of the provisions in the Equality Act. So, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into this with that, that, that very narrow majority. And by the way, I still maintain that had there not been this freak out about the existential crisis of the election was stolen and let's all, you know, run around and talk about how we can't trust our electoral systems, probably at least David Perdue would have won, which would have given Republicans a 51 to 49 majority in the Senate, which means that none of this would have happened. None of this at all would have happened. I don't know if it would have been enough to carry Leffler across the finish line, but Perdue probably would have would have beaten Han Solo hipster doofus John Ossoff, by the way, trademark. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to refer to him as Han, Han Solo, his hipster doofus John Ossoff trademark as long as he's in office, because the fact that he's a, a, a senator, is, uh, unfortunately, is an embarrassment to the, to the great state of Georgia. At least Raphael Warnock, although he's extremely progressive, is, is a reasonably good politician. Anyway, I, I move on. Um, there really is some bad stuff that the Biden administration can do, but does it amount to an existential crisis? Does it amount to, you know, they're going to be throwing religious dissenters in jail and rigging things so that Democrats never lose another election? I think that's a lot harder to project out. And I think, yes, there are some very, very concerning aspects of H.R. 1. There's some very concerning aspects of the Equality Act. There's some very concerning aspects in how much money the Democrats want to spend on all this stuff. 
right, and, and, and on their agenda. But they're playing with a very, very narrow majority in the House and the Senate, and they're acting like it's 2009 and they're one seat away from a 60-seat majority. And they, they have a crushing majority in the House, right? And we all know how 2010 went. It was not, it was not the best. By the way, George W. Bush, who I think was a much more decent human being, left with lower approval ratings than Donald Trump did, as, as I recall. So, you know, the idea that the Republican Party is like dead and buried forever is, is false. Now let's look at the Republican side, okay? So you've got all this concern trolling about how Donald Trump is, is an existential threat to democracy. He could come back, etc., etc. I would like to point out to everybody a couple of facts. Point number one, Donald Trump just had more senators of his own party vote against him in an impeachment vote than any president in history. Okay, Andrew Johnson doesn't count because there really weren't two parties at, at the time, and he really wasn't actually a Republican in any meaningful sense. He was part of the National Union Party, but wasn't really a Republican. Okay, so so yeah, still Trump has the most defections of any of any president in history. Point number two: it has literally been not even two months yet, like a month and a half. Okay, of course Donald Trump is still winning the CPAC straw poll, which by the way. Ron Paul won the CPAC straw poll for like five years, right? And as we all know about President Ron Paul, the CPAC, uh, the CPAC straw poll is very determinative of who's going to win the next primary. I'm pretty sure he won it going away in 2009. It was barely even a factor in 2012. Okay, so, you know, we have to take all of this with, with a little bit of a grain of salt. But of course it did. It's been like a month and a half. People are still, to a certain extent, to a large extent, looking back. But as people start to look forward in the Republican Party, what you're going to quickly realize is that there are people that are in the arena against Joe Biden, and Donald Trump is just not one of them. He's just not. He's more interested in, and, and has always been more interested in, fighting the fight within the Republican Party than he is in actually fighting the Democrats. And that's always been the case. Um, he likes to pick fights that he thinks he can win. He doesn't like to pick fights where he, where he is unsure of the outcome. He will when he has to. But it's not his MO. So how's that going to work when Republicans need to stay united to fight the stuff from the Biden administration that their base doesn't like? Right? We're talking about, even for 2022, we're talking about the approximate distance in time between... Let's see here. March 2019. I'm going to be perfectly honest, friends, as a political junkie who's been doing this podcast for a long time, I can't even tell you what was happening in the politics of March 2019. It was that long ago, um, which is actually not that long in politics. But since then, we've had two impeachments, coronavirus, a, cr a crazy election crisis. I can't even tell you. The rules are, are, are different from from that point okay the reality of the situation is two years is an eternity in politics an eternity in politics and this is the the positive side of the total click, clickbait stuff that I, I said is that the news cycle runs past you really fast so you know is this sort of th th this idea of uh trumpism and the golden statue and i, I think i pretty much have come out pretty clearly about how I feel about the personality cult aspect of Trumpism. I like the fact that Trump actually appealed to minority voters in ways that others haven't. I like the fact that there was some good policy stuff that came out. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that 
So many people want to treat him as the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reincarnated and the only hope for the salvation of American democracy, neither of which is true. But the reality is these things fade over time. Okay, and let's look at the more fundamental aspects of America. So I've talked about how I don't think there's a crisis on the left, and I don't necessarily think there's a crisis on the right. There's some problems, okay, for both sides that need to be worked through. There's some crazies, absolutely insane people in politics that, that, ride, that wear a blue jersey and that wear a red jersey, which is not new, by the way. Not, not new at all. It's just more in your face now than it has been in the past because social media is a thing. But what are we looking at as we're kind of coming out of this pandemic? We're looking at an economy that looks like it's going to grow substantially. Job numbers look positive. We're looking at a situation in which we, have, we had an outbreak of violence at the Capitol. It's a horrifying experience. It has not thus far led to anything beyond that. We survived a civil war in which 600,000 people died. And by that, I mean soldiers, 600,000 soldiers, more than that in terms of civilian loss of life, okay? The country is more resilient than people give it credit for. Our institutions are more resilient than partisans of the moment give them credit for, okay? Donald Trump came into office and everybody thought he was gonna be an authoritarian fascist. And the result of it was a very Republican looking tax cut, some executive orders, some of which were awesome and some of which were not so great but most of which were, were really, I would say, within the scope of what you'd expect from a typical Republican president. And a lot of nasty and ridiculous things on Twitter that don't seem to have impacted policy all that much. The upshot, if you look from a policy perspective of the Trump administration, is that he kind of governed like a conservative Republican president with a few fairly odd twists to it. Now, he acted much more like a populist, at times like a demagogue, etc., particularly toward the end there. And we have to keep that in mind. I'm not saying that history is going to regard him as a great president. What I am going to say is, you know, this is not the, the march of fascism, okay? I'm pretty sure that Hitler, Mussolini, you know, Ferdinand Marcos, uh, if you want to go go a, a step down in, in uh, dictatorship, I'm pretty sure these guys weren't you know, resigning from office, particularly if they thought an election was stolen so they could go play golf, right? Trump is, is many things. He's not a dictator. You know how you can tell somebody not, not a dictator? Because when they, when they lose an election under the rules of the Constitution, they, they step down from office. That, that's how you can tell. It's really a very a simple hoop test, right? Donald Trump supporters don't represent an existential threat to American democracy. They just don't. Neither do Donald Trump's opponents. Neither do the, the you know, hardcore wokists on the left. They represent some pretty bad ideas. They represent some policies I don't like. They represent long-term some challenges to the American uh, system, the American way of life, that probably will not manifest as fully as their hopes and dreams may believe. Is it a good situation? No. Are we in a great place as a country? No. Are we probably in for some rough times ahead? Yes. But those rough times are actually being exacerbated by the existential fear that's coming out of everybody right now. So here's my advice. Calm down. 
Everybody calm down. It's going to be fine. Guess what? You're going to lose elections. The side that you prefer is going to lose elections. And then you're going to win elections. And then you're going to lose elections. That's how politics works. You win some, you lose some. Policies you don't like get enacted. Policies you do like then replace those policies at times. And it's not going to destroy the country in all likelihood. If you have to, if you're a betting person and you have to bet, is this going to be whatever your, whatever your this is, whatever your hobby horse is, is this going to be the thing that destroys America? Always take the field, right? So always bet that it will be something else at some later time because the odds will be in your favor in, in, in that bet. Something eventually is probably going to do us in. We don't know when, right? You know, the, the, the sweep of history tells us that there's no such thing as an eternal empire on which the sun never sets. It's a historical impossibility. That doesn't mean that the circumstances of the moment are it. I, I In my international relations slash foreign policy hat, I spend a lot of time reading and, and studying declinism, right? The idea of whether America's in decline. And if you look at this historically... Countries, nations, empires that are actually in decline don't spend a lot of time talking about it because they're too busy trying to survive it. In fact, the most declinist literature is usually produced at the height of a society's power and influence. If you read, sort of during the Pax Romana, Romans are talking about how their virtue has been sapped and decline is imminent. At the height of Christendom in the 1200s, everyone's talking about how this is the end of days and the whole world is going to hell. There's, there tends to be, actually, uh, this weird correlation that when empires should be at their most comfortable, or when nations should be at their most powerful and comfortable, is when they feel like they're declining. Now, this isn't dispositive. It doesn't prove that you know this is, this is guaranteed to be the next American century. But again, you got to look at the odds on this. All right, so... All right, so that's going to be a wrap for this episode. A little bit shorter, but just, just wanted to kind of get that off my chest. Everybody needs to calm down a little bit. Everything is going to be fine. Doesn't mean that everything's going to go great. Doesn't mean you're going to win every policy victory or your side is going to win every policy victory. But we're not on the verge of imminent collapse. And the danger of existential fear is that it makes you do stupid things politically. It makes you compromise your values and your integrity because you're under the false impression that if you don't, it's the end of everything. Okay, what kind of what prompted this is, is some talk by folks like Bill Crystal who are talking about now how because the you know Trump and, and the the Trump you know supporters and all this kind of stuff are such an existential threat that you have to ally, you have to take a pro Biden position politically. And here's the thing, okay, Just step back from the spin cycle and recognize that you're saying this about a guy who left office. You know he and a huge percentage of his supporters think the election was stolen, and he still left office. By the way, a lot of Republicans think the election was stolen and are still ready to move on, right? So there's, there's complications even there. How can you say at this point that, that it's more of an existential threat than it was before? The threat, clearly, if you think that Trump was an existential threat, has diminished. I don't necessarily think he was. I have said since the beginning of the Trump administration that Trump would be an acid test of two things, our institutions and our faith in them. And 
from the beginning, right up until just about the end, I said, for the most part, we've passed the institutional tests and failed the faith in the institutions test. I would still say, by and large, that's true. Mike Pence, Trump's own vice president, oversees the certification of an election loss, despite the fact that there was intense pressure for him not to do so. Mitch McConnell basically says, no, we're not going down this road. Okay, there are enough people who are institutionalists that they have lines that they will not cross because the institution is still more important than the partisanship of the moment. As long as you have those institutional guardrails in place, you're still passing the institution's test. The problem is the faith in the institutions has eroded so badly that people want to get rid of the guardrails in order to help their side succeed. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. Now we flip to the other script. Democrats are wanting to get rid of filibuster reform so they can pass a bunch of stuff that is going to get shot down in the courts. And then you're going to have eventually Republicans in control of, of unified control of the three branches again, and you will have gotten rid of the filibuster. Okay? This is not a smart political strategy. But it is a strategy that we see comes from existential fear. Right? And this is why it's dangerous and corrosive. Because if faith in the institutions corrodes too far, then people will stop taking the steps they need to take to make them survive. So we need to calm down. We need to step back. We need to realize that we can have faith in our institutions, but also expect more our politicians to demonstrate their fidelity to the institutions, even when they're not in the short-term partisan interest. Because ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? Politicians are creatures of incentives. They will follow what the voters demand of them. If we demand fidelity to the Constitution and to the processes that exist uh, within that, if we demand constitutional governance, then we'll probably get it. If we demand do whatever it takes to, to make our side win, then we'll get that, or at least the appearance of that. So calm down, take a breath, realize that we're not at the verge of collapse, but also that the greatest danger is this, this existential fear. And the best check on it is voters who expect better from politicians than catering to the lowest common denominator fear-based impulses in American society. And that's the reality that we face. So now, that really is going to be a wrap for you this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Not sure when this is going to drop, but probably, you know, th this is not something that is going to really be going away. So it's, it's a little bit of an evergreen episode, but it'll probably be coming out sometime, you know, in the next two, two or three weeks after I've recorded it. I am recording this on spring break. Um, so my guess is it'll come out a little bit after that. I did want to remind you to uh, check out our other social media content on the uh, Robertson School of Government from Regent University. I want you also to, to remind you to check out our degrees. We've got some new degree programs launching. We've got a new degree in campaigns and political leadership that's launching in the fall. Uh, we also have a new master's degree in international development. Uh, that one's kind of been my baby. I've, I've played a role in uh, putting that together. So I want to do some podcasts on that uh, in the run-up to the kickoff. So we'll be, we'll be shifting a little bit more to that focus as we move forward. Um, this is something that I do for work, this podcast. So while, you know, I do get to pontificate on my uh, favorite political issues. There are going to be times when we need to put in some plugs. And so we'll be putting in some plugs for that new degree, which I think is, is, is good and, and has the opportunity to get even better over time if we, can, if we can get some folks enrolled in it. So 
please do continue to check us out. Tell your friends, tell your family members, tell everybody who's looking for that sort of counterintuitive yet calm take on American politics to rate and subscribe to Blind Politics. And so for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.